You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor 88.3. Got the Living Rider Show coming up here in a minute, but let me uh, tell you what you've been listening to. That was the 13th Floor Elevators with You're Gonna Miss Me. Preceded by Haul Sages with Sociedad Alternativa. Before that was Richie Haven's Strawberry Fields Forever. No, that wasn't. No, actually, that was uh, Hot Tuna, which I played uh, because Yorma is playing tonight at the Ark. Uh, that was a song called Highway Highway Song. Before Hot Tuna was Richie Haven's Strawberry Fields Forever. Before that was uh, my own personal mashup between Henry Cow and uh, Bob Grin's Thought Master series of records. Mind power means sales power. Before that was The Faces, a song called Flying, preceded by The Small Faces with Steve Marriott, Afterglow off of Ogden's Nutgon Flake. My name is Chris. I've been doing Freeform for Sassafras Root Mayhem, usually with Carl Petska, but uh, he's uh, not in today. So thanks for uh, listening, and Living Writers is coming right up for you. Sassafras Root Mayhem. This is the section of Pantalones, and you're listening to WCBM FM Ann Arbor. afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Rachel Harkai. Our guest today is author Ayelet Waldman. Ayelet is the author of a new novel titled Love and Other Impossible Pursuits, as well as the book Daughter's Keeper and the Mommy Track Mystery Series. Her personal essays have been published in a wide variety of periodicals, including The New York Times, Elle Magazine, and The Guardian. She has a regular column on Salon.com, and her books are published throughout the world. Ayelet is married to Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Michael Chabon and lives with him and their four children in Berkeley, California. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Rachel. It's a delight. Well, I was hoping that um, since you're here in Ann Arbor doing some publicity for your newest book, uh, we could get started by having you read just a little intro passage so that our listeners could get an idea of what love and other impossible pursuits is all about. I'd be glad to. This is from the very beginning of the book. Usually, if I duck my head and walk briskly, I can make it past the playground at West 81st Street. I start preparing in the elevator, my eyes on the long brass arrow as it ticks down from the 7th, 6th, 5th, 4th floor. Sometimes the elevator stops and one of my neighbors gets on and I have no choice but to crack the carapace of my solitude and pretend civility. If it's one of the younger ones, the guitar player with the brush of red hair and the peeling skin, say, or the movie executive in the rumpled jeans and the buttery leather coat, it's enough to muster a polite nod of the head. 
The older ones require more. The steel-haired women in the self-consciously bohemian dresses, folds of purple peeping from under the hems of black wool capes, demand conversation about the weather or the spot of wear on the oriental carpet runner in the lobby or the front page of the art section. That is quite nearly too much to bear, because don't they see that I am busy? Don't they realize that obsessive self-pity is an all-consuming activity that leaves no room for conversation? Don't they know that the entrance to the park lies right next to the 81st Street playground, and that if, that, if, that if I am not completely prepared... If I do not clear my mind, stop my ears to all sounds other than my own breathing, it is entirely possible, likely even, that instead of striding boldly past the playground with my eyes on the bare gray branches of the trees, I will collapse outside the playground gate, the shrill voices of the children keening in my skull. Don't they understand these ladies with their petitions and their dead banker husbands and bulky Todd's purses that if I let them distract me with talk of Republicans stealing elections or whether Mrs. Katz from 2B saw Anthony the new doorman asleep behind the desk last Tuesday night, I will not make it past the playground to the refuge of the park beyond. Don't they get that the barbaric assault of their voices, the impatient thumping of their lucite canes as they wait insistently for my mumbled replies, will prevent me from getting to the only place in the entire city where I am able to approximate serenity? They will force me instead to trudge along the 79th Street transverse, pressed against the grimy stone walls, inhaling exhaust fumes from crosstown buses all the way to the east side. Or worse, they will force me to take a cab. Thank you. That was author Ayelet Waldman reading from her newest novel uh, titled Love and Other Impossible Pursuits. What a great title. Thank you you so much. You had me hooked. You had me hooked from the first time I saw the cover. Um, Tell us about the protagonist of your story, Amelia. Amelia Greenleaf is um, she's a woman in her early 30s. She lives in Manhattan. She grew up in New Jersey. She's um, She's married to a man named Jack with whom she's very much in love. And Jack has a son from a prior marriage. So she's a stepmother and a somewhat unwilling, grudging stepmother. Mm-hmm. Uh, where did where did she come from? Did she come out of uh, any person in your life? Did she come out of your, your own life? Or? Well, it's interesting, you know, uh, that, that question, you know, where do you get your ideas is this question that, that always plagues writer, cause writers because you, you they're there and you sometimes you know where they came from, but sometimes you just sort of have to... I don't know, make it up or something. But I, this book, I had the most amazing experience. So years ago, I was watching a very, very successful woman writer on Charlie Rose. And she was talking about how she doesn't invent things. She channels. And Hmm. that's all her. And I was sitting there listening to that. And I thought, oh, give me a break. You channel this, you know. (laughs) But when I was writing this book, I was away at this marvelous writer's colony in New Hampshire, this place called the McDowell Colony, which is like, paradise you know they give you a little studio in the woods they make all your meals they tiptoe to your studio with a basket at lunch so that you wouldn't be disturbed by any sound and you can just go on the porch whenever you're ready and get your basket it's 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 just the garden of eden and i went there for two weeks got away from my husband and my kids and i got to the mcdowell colony and i opened up the first morning i opened up this file on my computer and out of I don't even know where this voice kind of hit me like uh you know like a train and I was lying on the tracks and it you know obviously I wasn't channeling anything I don't believe that but my I couldn't write I couldn't type fast enough to keep up with the voices in my head the whole a 250 page first draft of this novel came out 
in two weeks. Wow. 75,000 words. And it was because of that voice of Amelia, because I, I knew her right away as soon as, as soon as she is, as I, I, well, she, I say she started just talking, although I hate to say it like that, but as soon as I started he, making up those words for her, she just seemed so completely right to me and familiar to me and exactly, I knew everything about her right away. Hmm. It sounds like the McDowell Colony is a fabulous place. I was just talking with a poet named Marie Howe the other mm-hmm. day, and she spent some time there as well. Do you think... Do you think that the uh, idea of solitude is something that's important for a writer? I think it's incredibly important. I mean, the way that I structure my workday is I'm very, very rigid and I'm very disciplined. Um, I I often say that I think the only difference between someone who's a writer and someone who wants to be a writer is actually getting your tush down in the chair. Mm-hmm. But And I write every day from 10 o'clock to 3 o'clock, which you know is the perfect amount of time if you got to get kids out that door in the morning and you have to be there when they get home from school in the afternoon. It's just enough to get your thousand words, sometimes more if things are going really well. But what it doesn't give you is that sense of immersion, that sense that everything you think, read, breathe, talk about is about your book. Because the rest of my day is consumed with children and everything I think, read, breathe, talk about is my kids. So when I go away, I have to do this at least once a year. I have to have the experience of being completely by myself you know, listening to nothing else but that, you know, that impulse, those voices in your head. Mm-hmm. And I always say it's it's incredibly important at the beginning of a book. It's incredibly important at the end of a book. It's really important in the middle. <laughs> it's but important I, everywhere. It's important all the time. And it just, you know, once a year is pretty much my husband and I do that for each other. We, we each cover for the other when they we go away. And, I, you know, I would do it. I would do it pretty much every few months if I could, but... Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about what it what it is like living in a house. You, you know, it sounds like from your writing that you are consumed with your family, uh-huh. which is wonderful. But I'm curious about what it's like living in a house with two very successful writers. Well, you know, on the one hand, we are consumed with our kids the way um, parents are. But on the other hand, we um, we we share this thing that that is totally separate from family, totally separate from the kids. And I think that's one of the secrets to our you know, knock on wood, good marriage. We work in the same office. Mm-hmm. We uh, used to be Michael's office, and I would just work on the couch on my laptop. But then I got horrible carpal tunnel, and now oh, I have no. my own desk. I know the writer's bane. Mm-hmm. So we work back to back, and we work together. And um, you know, so we'll each be typing. The only art disputes we have are music. For some reason, he thinks it's appropriate to write to Queen, which. It's so not okay. Yeah, no. So, um, and and you, and he has control of the music. So if he's writing something that takes place in China, we're all, we're listening to Chinese music, and every once in a while, I'm like, can we just please have a little Steve Reich, please? <laughs> Softly so, considered of you. Yeah, to exactly. Music control. It, him. You know what can I do? He's mm-hmm. the guy. <laughs> um, so. But, but you know, we talk all day long. So if someone's having a problem, if someone has an issue with a character that's not working or with a plot, we will get up and we'll go for a walk. And we'll walk and walk and walk through our neighborhood. And we, we call these plot walks until we solve the problem. And it's this amazing, it's this amazing relationship. You know, um, for a writer like me to have Michael Shabon editing my work is really exciting and thrilling and incredibly demanding. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also reciprocal, too. So I think it... Um, you know, marriages work in all sorts of different ways. And the way that our marriage works is that we share this thing that's totally separate from our kids. 
Yeah, that sounds pretty ideal. It is. I mean, we don't get me wrong. There's plenty of conflict. I mean, we always have it, it follows the same exact sort of, you know, there there's there's a route to editing. First, someone reads the other person's work and then says, you know, you're missing this and this isn't working. And the person being edited says, that's the most stupid thing I've ever heard. You have no idea what I'm trying to do here. You're wrong. And then we fight about it for a while. And then finally, the person being edited says, oh, my God, you're so right. It's just, mm. what But we never manage to, you know, as, we, as often as we tell each other, you know, you're just going to agree with me in 30 minutes. We never manage to avoid the fight. The fight always happens. Mm-hmm. Because your impulse whenever you give someone something to someone is you're no matter how often you've been doing this, no matter how many, you know, nine draft novels you've written, the fir- you always hope that the first draft, the person's going to say, oh, great, fine. Just, you know, hand that in. You're done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's important to it's important to have that kind of relationship where you can be critical of each other. Absolutely. Um, I was really I was really excited to talk to you about this, particularly after I interviewed Marie Howe. Um, she was telling me about. Uh, she was telling me a story about when she was living in New York in the late 60s and she had a bunch of women writers and poets over to her apartment and um, they just stormed in the apartment and they all they wanted to do was talk about women writers. And so they uh-huh. tried to make a list of, you know, female poets who, you know, did, hadn't gone crazy, hadn't killed themselves <laughs> and were able to sustain any sort of, you know, romantic relationship, be it, you know, with the opposite sex with the same sex and they were having such a hard say, time. That's a terrible challenge to set for yourself. It is. And I was wondering who, who your influences are. Um, Cause it seems like, you know, nobody's perfect, but it seems like you've got well, a pretty good thing I can worked tell you out. who my community is. So mm-hmm. one of the things that's been really, really important to me is to have a community of writers mm-hmm. and, and women especially who are going through the same things as I am, who, who can give me maybe who are maybe a little farther along in their career, who can give me that perspective. Um, Peggy Ornstein, who's the author of school girls and a new book called uh, waiting for Daisy. And she writes for the New York Times Magazine. She's a very, very good friend of mine. And she's a, just a couple of years older than I am um, and further along in her career. And she's been a real source of inspiration and strength to me because I feel like she's an example of how you can do it and do it well. So, um, And then other writers, Heidi Julevitz is terrific. Your own Julie Oringer, who's one of the most marvelous writers I know. Uh, Sylvia Brownrigg, Kate Moses, who wrote Wintering. So there's um there's a long list. There's so many. I think there's so many women doing such exciting things, particularly in fiction nowadays. Um, Nell Freudenberger is another example of someone who's delightful and whose whose work I really admire. Mm-hmm. I think in you know in particular your story, your writing is a a really encouraging example for a lot of female writers. And you know writing that comes from females is something that comes up pretty often on the show, probably uh-huh. because it's something that I'm you know particularly right. oriented towards. Um, but uh, I was really encouraged to read a little bit about your life and hear that um, it is possible to, you know, have have a successful literary life and also have a successful family life on the side. Mm-hmm. Because so often in our society, it seems like women are are forced to choose between, you know, career and family and well, the only reason I am a writer is because I made that choice. You know, mm-hmm. I confronted that choice, and I was I was a very happy criminal defense attorney. If if I had never had children, I would probably, you know, I, I the person that I would have modeled my life after is, you know, oh, now I'm forgetting his name, OJ's lawyer. 
Um, uh, whatever. <laughs> yeah. But you know, that was the kind of lawyer I was going to be. That kind of lawyer, and I was going to do a uh, decade or so at the public defender's office, and then go and take high-profile criminal defense cases. And I would have been happy forever. I love trial work. I love legal writing. But then I had kids, and suddenly the idea of having a job that it consumed eighteen hours of my day and um, you know and weekends was really unattractive. And um, it, it, the, when I first quit my job, I will tell you that I sank into a serious depression for mm-hmm. a couple of years. Even when I started writing, and I started writing really in order to kind of find a way out of that depression, to find something to do that was intellectually challenging and that meant something and that was more than just being on the playground. Because I think there, you know, there are women who can find all of their intellectual and emotional satisfaction in mothering Mm-hmm. And and they do do it as a noun and a verb, you know, but that I just wasn't one of those women. I mean, I love my kids. I love them desperately, but I, you know, I needed more. I needed something else to be the focus of my ambition. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that's one of the secrets nowadays. I think that's one of the reasons that so women, so many women are finding themselves so many privileged women are finding themselves in these positions of sort of kind of low grade depression and dissatisfaction. And, you know, you go, there's that, that's what these shows, these, the Oprah Winfrey show and the Dr. Phil and all those sort of daytime TV shows, they, they're, um, you know, they're, they feed on that depression. And the reason for the depression, I believe, is because I think it has a lot to do with, with the expectations of feminism and then the repercussions of an unchanged world. Mm -hmm. So here we are. You know, when I went to college, it never occurred to me that I couldn't absolutely do everything. Everything was open to me. I could do whatever I want. My mother was a 1970s feminist who'd raised me with the notion that, you know, the world was was mine for the grasping. And um, and I think when women like me, what you see, not everybody, certainly, but a, but a good portion of women have made significant career sacrifices in order to have a family Mm -hmm. you know the way the working world is now you work people work you know 10 12 hours a day minimum sometimes and two people can't do that and actually raise kids so inevitably inevitably it's the woman who sacrifices and either she goes on the mommy track or she quits her job altogether and then i think you see these situations where women bring you know these are ambitious aggressive competent women and now the source of the, you know, the channel for their ambition has been totally replaced by being a mother. And you see, you know, there's only so much that the nursery school committee can do for you. Mm-hmm. You can become, it can be, and these things are run like the corporate entities that they're, the women who run, who run them now used to run. So there it's, you know, the best damn nursery school committee in the history of nursery school committees. But ultimately, I think for a lot of women, they end up confronting the fact that that just isn't enough for them. And you get this feeling of dissatisfaction. And that's that's what led me to start writing. I think writing is a, you know, if you can actually support yourself, which is another story, it's a wonderful career for a working parent. Mm-hmm. It's, it sounds like it. But uh, we're going to take a short break. You're listening to The Living Writer Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. We'll be right back. immediately not being used to being 
just myself I made too much of it But I drank it all Just cause you hate it When I let things go to waste And I wandered through the house Like a little boy Lost at the mall And an astronaut could have seen The hunger in my eyes from space And I sang you're listening to The Living Writer Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Rachel Harkeye, and I'm talking with our guest today, Ayala Waldman. Uh, we just spoke a little bit about her newest lo- novel, Love and Other Impossible Pursuits. Um, we're talking a little bit about the break, before the break, about um, what it's like to be a female writer, what it's like to be a female writer uh, with a family. And I was particularly interested in your writing because it is so it is so oriented toward females. Tell me about the Mommy Track mystery series. Well, that's where I got, you know, that's where I got my start. And the truth was, I never imagined myself a writer. So, and particularly being married to such a successful novelist, I, I felt like I couldn't presume to be a writer. But I thought, you know, I'd read a lot, a lot of murder mysteries in my life. I read them, you know, like you chew chewing gum. And when you read a lot of murder mysteries, you read a lot of good ones and you read a lot of bad ones. Mm-hmm. And so I thought to myself, all right, I can write a bad murder mystery. How hard could that possibly be? I mean, it turns out that it's actually harder than it looks. You know, you murder mysteries, just like regular novels have characters and they they have you have to set the scene and do all those things that you do. And you also have a, to have a plot that someone in the history of nine gazillion murder mysteries has never had before. So um, but those books are they're light and they're funny, and they're meant to be, I would say they're meant to be read with all the attention you can muster while breastfeeding. Exactly <laughs> that amount, right? And I and I wrote them for that. I wrote them for company. I wrote them to have someone, the, the main character, Juliet Applebaum, is a stay-at-home mom, former public defender who solves crime to keep herself from going crazy in the playground. I just wanted someone to talk to, you know? Mm-hmm. I would sit there, I would be there, you know, at Jimbery and Mommy and Me, and after the 25th circle of, you know, Jimbo the Clown, I'd lean over to a woman and whisper, God, this, this, this kind of sucks. <laughs> and the woman would look back at me and say, what are you talking about? I just perfected my homemade Play-Doh recipe. And I felt completely alone in my feeling like what I, I desperately wanted to be there for my child. I knew that I was doing the right thing, but I was going crazy. So I made a friend. I made someone, you know, who got my jokes. And I... um. I, it was a s- complete surprise to me when the book sold. Wow. So you, you write the Mommy Track mystery books. Uh, you've got this regular column on salon.com. That actually, I'm not doing the column anymore. Okay. But I'm writing other fiction, nonfiction, but not the column. Mm-hmm. I uh, The first piece I ever read by you actually was uh, an essay in the Times. Uh, it was, I believe, reprinted with yep. the title Truly Madly Guiltily. Right. And as soon as I... As soon as I read it, I liked you. Oh, um, good. I was, You're the only person in America because most people burn me in effigy after that. I was I was so impressed by your forthrightness, by your willingness to be honest with the public. And I was hoping that you would read a little bit sure. from that essay for I'll us. I'll read sort of from the middle. Um, I am the only woman in Mommy and Me who seems to be, well, getting any. This could fill me with smug well-being. I could sit in that room, in the room and gloat over my wonderful marriage. I could think about how our, our sex life, always vital, even torrid, is more exciting and imaginative now than it was when we first met. I could check my watch to see if I have time to stop at good vibrations to see if they have any exciting new toys. I could even gaze pityingly at the other mothers in the group, wishing that they too could experience a love as deep as my own. 
but I don't. I am far too busy worrying about what's wrong with me. Why, of all the women in the room, am I the only one who has not made the erotic transition a good mother is supposed to make? Why am I the only one incapable of placing her children at the center of her passionate universe? When my first daughter was born, my husband held her in his hands and said, My God, she's so beautiful. I unwrapped the baby from her blankets. She was average size with long, thin thin fingers and a random assortment of toes. Her eyes were close set and she had her father's hooked nose. It looked better on him. (laughs) She looked like a newborn baby, red and scrawny, blotchy faced and mewling. I don't remember what I said to my husband. Actually, I remember very little of my Percocet and Vicodin fogged first few days of motherhood, except for someone calling and squealing, aren't you just completely in love? And of course I was, just not with my baby. I do love her, but I'm not in love with her, nor with her two brothers or sister. sister. Yes, I have four children, four children with whom I spend a good part of every day, bathing them, combing their hair, sitting with them while they do their homework, holding them while they weep their tragic tears. I love them all, but I'm not in love with any of them. I'm in love with my husband. It is his face that inspires in me paroxysms of infatuated devotion. If a good mother is one who loves her child more than anyone in the world, I am not a good mother. I am, in fact, a bad mother. I love my husband more than I love my children. Thank you. That was author Ayelet Waldman reading a portion of her essay that was published in The Times called Truly Madly Guiltily. Like you mentioned before, that essay sparked a lot of controversy. Yeah, it did. <laughs> yeah, you've written, I mean, you've written quite a few, you've written quite a few controversial nonfiction pieces. You know, that one, uh, I read one about uh, you going on SSRIs uh, prior uh-huh. to your pregnancy with right. one of your children and sort of your fear that, you know, it caused problems. Right, it caused exactly. problems and there was one. That he damaged, that it damaged him. Yeah. Did Have you, have you looked into that anymore? Or was that you essay know, just I sort think- of like... I think with that essay in particular, I think, in fact, Abraham, and I'll never be able to prove this otherwise, but I, I think that, in fact, A.B. was born and went through SSRI withdrawal. Nowadays, they, they're they um, less willing to tell women to take their antidepressants. I mean, if you really need them and if it's the difference between, you know, committing suicide and not, then you take them. But um, but if someone someone like me who maybe is on the edge is discouraged from taking them now because the babies are born and have to go through SSRI withdrawal and i think he exhibited the signs of that you know he has he was irritable and he couldn't nurse and he cried for a while and he was slow to gain weight and he had other issues and while i feel incredibly guilty about them i don't think i actually caused them mm-hmm. but um but this one i feel really i feel responsible for i mean that that kind of thing happens when you're a parent you know one day i when when um when love and other impossible pursuits first came out I, my I, my family and i went on vacation and we'd been to this place in hawaii the year before and walking on the beach my daughter had pointed out to me that everybody was reading the da vinci code and nobody was reading my books <laughs> which was in fact true. I've never seen so many people reading these. It was like a scene from a movie with everybody reading the same book all over the beach. But um, but this year I saw a woman reading my book, and sort of I got closer in that way that you do, and she was crying. She's a woman probably in her late fifties, and um, I, you know I went up to her. What I was just you know what was I going to do? So I went up to her and I told her who I was, and I, you know, we talked for a while. And she told me that she um. 
she, her first child, 30-some-odd years before, had been born with a severe genetic abnormality and died a few days after work, mm. work birth. And she told me that all of her life, she's felt this incredible sense of guilt. I mean, she knows she didn't do anything. This is just the genetic slot machine. You know, there was nothing she could have done. But she has always harbored this sense of responsibility. And, um, and you know, that's the thing that Amelia feels. Amelia's baby has died of SIDS, and she feels tremendously, tremendously guilty. And I, I think that's one of the, you know, it helps if you're Jewish and or Catholic. To, mm-hmm. but, but guilt is this this paramount emotion of parenting. It's really hard to get away from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in particular, uh, the issue with the SSRIs and mm-hmm. infants, uh, it's something that the medical community is pretty reluctant to make an opinion on or right. state an opinion on. So I can see how that could breathe right. a lot of uncertainty. Exactly. Um, you wrote another column about how um, you wanted your son to be gay. Yeah, that one got everybody really angry too. Yeah. Yeah, I don't understand that. I think anybody in their right... First of all, you know, if one of my kids is gay, then they're they're not going to have any problem coming out, you know? I mm-hmm. mean, they probably wouldn't even if I hadn't written that because our lives are so full of gay families and gay people. And But, um, but and you know, people take me to task because one of the things I was saying was, you know, I was sort of going into these... Stere- I was talking about the stereotypes of gay men and, you know, they'll, they would they like to shop more. They dress better than straight men. They, you know... Are more they have a more sophisticated taste in music and art and you know, everyone is is just pillaring me for the for these stereotypes, which I totally admit that they're stereotypes. But can I just say of the gay men I know, they are much happier to go shopping. They have a more sophisticated understanding of art. They dress better. You know, mm-hmm. I thought that was a really interesting. Um a really interesting essay, and I felt like it tied in to the one that you read for our listeners uh-huh. today. I can really sense in you just this deep-rooted urge to love, to love your husband, to uh-huh. love your children. And as controversial as that essay was, I really felt like it was it was you not wanting anyone to come in between you and your son. <laughs> which... Right, exactly. I mean, that's really what it was about, too, is about jealousy. There's a whole section of the of that piece that I ended up cutting out, which was about, you know, imagining this, the, the wife who he'd have and feeling really, you know, resentful of that person who, who replaced me in his, you know, the Oedipal complex is a beautiful thing. If you're a mom, you have this adorable person who looks at you and just Zeke, especially every, when he was a toddler, every 15 minutes, he would look at me and he'd say, mommy, I love you. Oh. And it's just, you know, uh, it's it's constant, unadulterated adoration. It's an amazing thing to feel, you know, particularly if you grew up like a geeky kid in New Jersey who didn't feel that from, you know, certainly in junior high school. Mm-hmm. It's pretty great. So, you know, all that is tongue in cheek. Of course, what I want my kid to do is grow up and be fulfilled both emotionally and professionally and find someone to love, whoever that will be, and have children because I really want to be a grandmother. Um, although if they don't have children, fine, I'll support that decision too, <laughs> to them. In, but at home, I will weep into my grandchild-deprived prello. Oh. But um, yeah, you know that it, it is. It 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 always so funny. You know, after that essay came out, the one in the New York Times, um, somebody actually reported me to the Alameda County Department of Social Services for child neglect, 
And um, I always, you know, the, the irony of someone making that call while I was standing in my kitchen on a Monday morning, making these four lunches, you know, none of which is remotely like the other, because one person has to have his sandwiches cut on the diagonal, and the other person <laughs> has to have the crust cut off and it cut into squares. And this one doesn't have a sandwich at all because she doesn't like a sandwich. And this one has to have everything covered with ketchup because it could be anything. And this one, like, only like sushi. And I'm, you know, <laughs> sitting there developing with this highly elaborate l- list of demands that I am happy. F- Happily fulfilling, and I thought to myself, you know what? Okay, take them away. You make their lunches. <laughs> it's just so absurd. <laughs> what happened? Did anything come of that? No. Okay, good. I think you know they got. I, 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 they certainly never got in touch with me, Alameda County. Mm-hmm. I mean, who knows? There's a file. They're waiting for just one more essay, and they'll come with the paddy wagons oh, God. to take my overindulged children. <laughs> where? What foster home would possibly be good enough for them? Where will they have you know exactly the TiVo <laughs> and the m- back massages that they need to get through their days. Uh, Well, we're going to take one more short break. Uh, You're listening to The Living Writers Show. We'll be right back. From what I've seen You're magnificent You fight evil with all you do. Your every hand is spectacular. Makes me lay here and love you. listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Rachel Harkai, and I'm talking with novelist and essayist Ayelet Waldman about her recent work. Um, we were talking a little bit before the break about some of the more controversial, you know, nonfiction pieces that you've written. And it's clear to me that these issues in these essays are things that you're compelled to write about. But did you have any idea before you published these essays, you know, how much criticism that you were going to receive? You know, you'd think that I would have given that, um, you know, you look at the essay and you think, duh. But uh, each time I've sort of thought, well, I mean... you never think you're the only person with an opinion. And I never have been. I mean, the truth is, even this New York Times essay, my email inbox was full of email, but the New York Times also received a, just a tremendous amount of mail. And the it turns out there's a difference between someone who carefully constructs a letter to the editor of New York Times and someone who emails a writer. So the latter are crazy. And the form, but you know, the, what the New York Times received was overwhelmingly positive, you know, more than 10 to 1. Letters from couples who'd been married for a long time saying that this was the secret to their strong marriage. A lot of letters from widows talking about their husbands. Um, letters from children of who, who said that they wanted a marriage like that, like their parents had. Um, and my inbox was full of um, things like, I mean, there was positive, positive stuff there, too. Men asking, thanking me for getting them some action for the first time in six years <laughs> uh, or asking me to, with their wife's address, email address included, it, to you know, write them and say something to them. I actually, what I always said to those men 
who, you know, were complaining about that their wives were not as uh, interested sexually in them as I am in my husband. I always said, you know what? Forget the flowers. Forget the laundry. If you really want to get some, unload the dishwasher. (laughs) You know, do the laundry. Pull your weight. I promise you there's nothing sexier than a man who can sweep the kitchen floor. Mm -hmm. You will have a lifetime of frequent sex if you just manage to do 50% of the housework. (laughs) Um, I'm curious as to whether uh, this this move into fiction again into your newest novel was uh, a step away from that controversy whether you were trying to no no I wrote you know I wrote this book it takes so long for a book to get published you know from the day that you hand it in to the day that it comes out is a year sometimes even more so I wrote this book long before I wrote that essay but you know I've been writing that uh, essentially the same thing for 10 years in complete obscurity. Mm-hmm. I've been writing about maternal ambivalence. I've been writing about this experience of having children, loving them, being overwhelmed with how much you love them and at the same time feeling the sense of ambivalence because you lose so much of yourself and your identity and who you were. So I was writing about that in in a, you know, light and fluffy way when I was writing the murder mysteries. I wrote about that in my first novel Daughter's Keeper, which is uh, it you know it's, it was meant to be a searing indictment of the war on drugs and really it's a novel about mothers and daughters you know so it's really the it's the kind of thing I've been saying forever and I just you know saying it in a book that a few people buy is different from saying it in the pages of the New York Times mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so well, I was hoping that you would um, read us one more passage from okay. Love and Other Impossible Pursuits well this is fun because I'm going to read from the end I don't think I'm going to give much away but um, this is towards the end of the book which is always you, you never do that when you're in bookstores so it's great for me to read it the wind buffets us as we walk along the winding paths under the creaking trees it is at our backs and propels us like a couple of ungainly kites over the cracked cement walks as we walk north, looking for a path that will cut, cut west to the ramble and the bridge, the sound of children's voices begins to grow louder. There is a playground here at 77th Street. It is like the other playgrounds in Central Park, full of bundled children and their mothers, cocoa-skinned nannies, babies batting mittened hands at toys dangling from the hoods of their carriages. As we pass the playground, Jack shoots me a glance, evaluating my response. I look inside the gates. There is a little boy, four or five years old, too small to see over the handle of the stroller he is pushing. The baby in the stroller screams with excitement, laughs wildly at the thrill of being humped along by her big brother. Their mother walks next to them, a protective hand occasionally adjusting their direction, keeping the stroller from rolling into harm's way. I think of William and of Isabel. I imagine how he might have wheeled her in her denim bugaboo. I think of the baby William's mother Carolyn will have, the little brother or sister he will have a chance to know. And before my mind wanders further, I take Jack's hand and we continue walking west toward the ramble. We don't speak while we walk, just watch our breath mist in the air as we climb. It takes only 10 or 15 minutes to reach the hut. All I needed to do was take the lake path and cut north when I was looking for it. It's a straight shot from there. It's a little wooden structure, a kind of pergola with arched sides and a shake roof. The walls are made of odd-shaped logs hewn from the trunks of narrow trees. It is very hut-like and disappointingly unsecluded, with paths running into it from all sides. I can't believe this is right here, I say. I can't believe you couldn't find it, Jack says. He reaches over and tugs together the sides of my coat. It's much colder here inside the hut than it was outside. We sit down on one of the rustic little benches. 
I extend my legs out toward the center of the cobblestone starburst that makes up the floor. Jack also puts his feet out, and they go much farther than mine. As small as he is, he is taller than me. We are a nice pair, a good matched set. But are we a magical unit? The story I have always told Jack about the way we fell in love was a Kabbalistic tale of Beshert, of magic and meant to be, of angels flying through lifetimes. I'm afraid my father is right. I spun a dream web no more real than the fantasy he himself chased. I mystified and mysticized our love to excuse the damage we did. The miraculous tale made it possible to ignore, to ignore promises made and oaths sworn, children born and trust laid. Jack and I were beshert, and thus we had no choice but to rain nuclear fire on those who stood between us. We were meant to be, not by choice, but by destiny. Because we were powerless in the face of fate, we were also blameless. But Jack was a father first, before I became a mother, and thus he believed less readily than I. The gravitational pull of his paternal guilt was strong, and I was forced to be an aeronaut, constantly tending gas fires and lines, filling the balloon with hot air so that our tiny basket could stay aloft. When the silk tore and my skills failed, we crashed hard, breaking bones and crushing limbs in our race to the earth. Now I see we are not a chapter from an ancient mystical text ordained by God. We do not love with magic. We love each other like a man and a woman are supposed to love each other, with hard work and fear, with effort and misunderstanding, with moments of ease, and finally, necessarily, with trust. Thank you. That was author Ayala Waldman uh, reading a passage from her newest novel, Love and Other Impossible Pursuits. I loved that passage. Oh, I thought so it was glad. one Thank of you. the more more beautiful and more poignant passages in the novel, just because you know, despite all of the obstacles that your protagonist, Amelia, and her husband, Jack, are presented with, it really is a romance novel. Mm -hmm. And I thought I thought it was really telling how you moved out of the idealism of many romance novels in that passage and really touched on the, the realism of it, the mm -hmm. pragmatism of it. And you mentioned, you know, the hard work that goes into a relationship. And I was wondering, you know, that passage is so adamant about uh, the importance of effort and work and how, how it is at times a struggle, even though there are often magical moments. I was wondering whether you think it's an issue that's, you know, entirely work or is there some fate involved? Well, that's an interesting question. You know, just when you're talking about the idea of romance, um, I was just reading Jane Smiley's 13 Ways of Looking at the Novel, and she talks about every novel as being this kind of nexus. And they can be history, they can be biography, they can be romance. And by that, you, you know, she doesn't mean the exact the genre of romance, the genre of mystery, but that those elements, you know, that that is what creates, that's what creates fiction. That's what creates the kind of magic of fiction. Um, you know, I think I am probably more inclined to the um well not necessarily the mystical but i i am i feel m less pragmatic about my relationship than amelia does mm -hmm. you know amelia her circumstance forced her to a kind of pragmatism that i don't necessarily experience i mean granted my marriage is absolutely hard work you know you have to work at it every day it's never easy but at the same time I do believe that there was some kind of Beshert involved with us. And, you know, I am, um, I remember the first time I saw my husband, we were fixed up on a blind date. 
And he was he picked me up in my apartment in the East Village, and he was standing. I went down to let him in because my buzzer was broken. And he was standing between two panes of bulletproof glass, this bouquet of irises in his hand. And I looked at him, and I thought to myself, oh, now I can stop dating. And it really was this instant. <laughs> like I recognized him. You know, I knew that he was the person that I was going to, you know, make my life, make my family with. And he felt the same way. We were engaged three weeks later. I mean, and we've both been through plenty of prior relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a boyfriend for six years who I didn't marry. And but we both just knew we were, you know, as soon as we met, we knew. Mm-hmm. And, so so oh, it's a balance then. Yeah. yeah. I think that kind of feeling of intense attraction you know, that chemical response is really important in sustaining a marriage long term because you, you, families, all families have these mythologies that make them go forward. And sometimes they're true and sometimes they're false. But um, one of the myths of our marriage, and by myth, I don't mean that in the pejorative sense that it's not true. But one of the sustaining myths of our marriage is, is this initial intense confidence that we were meant to be. And and in times when things are difficult, we actually sort of look back on that and remember together, and, t- and that helps us 